0: This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for Your Life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. On these Sangha nights, we have heard about the Buddha's, no, Buddha to be's noble quest. We've heard a bit about the Buddha's teaching life, and we've meditated sitting like the Buddha, and we've also explored a sutta telling of the Buddha's encounter with the bandit, Angulimala. So we come now to the story of the Buddha's last days in human form, and the Parinirvana. Now you might hear the Parinirvana talked about as the death of the Buddha, but in fact this isn't quite accurate. Parinirvana means final nirvana, So at that time, the Buddha's body dies, but the Buddha doesn't die. And we'll come back to that mystery right at the end of the talk. So the last days and months of the Buddha in human form is recounted in the Maha Parinabhāna Sutta. And there are many angles that I could take on this topic. But when I was preparing this talk, what stood out for me were, were these things. I found that I was inspired, moved, by the qualities shown by the Buddha. So his patience, his dignity, his fearlessness, compassion and wisdom, how he actually related to people at that time. And I was struck by a sense of deep mystery in the parinirvana itself. So that's what I've decided to try to share with you. And I've called the talk, The Way to the Beyond, Because throughout this final episode of the Buddha's human life, we get a glimpse of transcendence, of something that's beyond our ordinary everyday understandings. A glimpse of a consciousness that's boundless, something that's beautiful, wise and compassionate. I've wanted to share some of the narrative of the Sutta with you too. So my talk has ended up being the telling of a story in which I've picked out three incidents in particular, to talk about. Firstly, the Buddha's instructions to Ananda, the comforting of Ananda, and then the mystery of the Parinirvana. So the first topic, final instructions to Ananda. And here we are, in the rainy season, in ancient northern India, in the final year of the Buddha's human life, in a town named Baluva, So the Buddha's been wandering around from place to place as he always did, meeting all sorts of people. As a matter of fact, he's recently conversed with an envoy of King Ajatasattu, who is intent on destroying an enemy clan. He's recently conversed with a uh, sorry. He's accepted a meal and the gift of a mango grove from a very well-known courtesan called Amberpali, and caused a few raised eyebrows. And he has in many small terms taught the Dharma, particularly the threefold way, ethics, meditation and wisdom. Mm. But now he's 80 and he's very frail. My journey is drawing to a close, he says. Just as a worn out carriage can only be kept going by being held together with straps, so this body can only be kept going by being strapped up. In Valuva, the Buddha became very ill with sharp and deadly pains. But he didn't want to go without taking leave of his followers, and by a great effort, an act of will, he recovered somewhat and continued to live. The story here tells that as soon as he felt better, he went out of his dwelling and sat down in the shade of the building. His close friend and cousin and attendant, Arnander, as ever was at his side, Now, Ananda had been anxiously mulling over this situation in his mind. What will happen when the Buddha is no longer with us? How should his followers go on? And in all this anxiety, he says to the Buddha, you know, the only thing that's some comfort to me is that you will give us some final instructions. And the Buddha says, well, no. He says, what does the community of monks expect of me? He points out that he has taught the Dharma without holding anything back. There is no more that he needs to say. Instead of relying on him, he says, his followers must learn to rely on themselves and on the Dharma, the truth. They should practice mindfulness, for example. So here's the Buddha saying clearly to Ananda and his followers, Look, I know I'm going, but this is not a story about me. It's about the truth. Go on seeking the truth, by applying my teachings, and you'll have all you need to become enlightened yourselves. So this reminded me of an earlier episode in the Buddha's life, which Steven talked about a few weeks ago. The Buddha, for his enlightenment, Mr. Gotama, as he was then, mastered the teachings of a well-known teacher called Alara Kalama, and he was offered to take over as leader at that time of the community. But he declined. He wasn't interested in spiritual ambition and he knew he hadn't yet found what he was looking for. He wasn't about to settle down. And now we're meeting him as the Buddha, as one who has found the truth he was looking for. But still there's no question of him resting on his laurels, the laurels of spiritual achievement. He doesn't use his leaving as an opportunity to try to gain prestige to want to live on in the shape of a personal legacy. He doesn't say, well, you need to do this special kind of ritual in memory of me and that will save you. What he wants above all is for people to develop, to follow the way to the truth as he did, and to have confidence in themselves and the teachings. So this shows a mind unattached to any idea of a personal goal, radically unambitious, well beyond the worldly winds of fame and infamy that buffet the rest of us so strongly. But it's not just that. The Buddha also says something else, something I find very interesting. He says, If there is anyone who thinks, I shall lead the community of monks, or the community depends on me, let him make some statement about the community of monks. But the Buddha does not think in such terms, So why should he make any statement about the community of monks? So here's the Buddha, the leader by now of a very large (coughs) social community, and yet he does not think in these terms. So with our ordinary way of thinking, it's hard to get our heads around this. We are so used to being in role of some kind, and we habitually identify with that, often causing ourselves all sorts of problems. So think of people, for example, who can't imagine retiring from work. Who would they be? And all the time we habitually relate to the world according to the person we think we are. And we judge ourselves and we get attached to some sort of approval we think we get from being a good student, good writer, even, heaven forbid, a good Buddhist. But through the hints of the Buddha's mind we see another possibility – This mind has gone beyond categories of person entirely. And in fact he's seen through all the ways we habitually try to divide up the world so as to fix things. The Buddha acts, does things in the world, but without a concept of himself as doer of the deed. What would that like, be that? What would that be like for us? How freeing would that be? Could we play the guitar without needing to be a musician learn without falling into the role of a student can I deliver this talk without trying to be a dharma teacher answer I'm working on it so shortly after this conversation with Armada on the subject of last instructions the story goes the Buddha moved on to a prosperous commercial town uh, called Vaisali. A town of which it seems the Buddha was quite fond. And here a character called Mara props up. Props up. Pops up. Now Mara's an old adversary. He's a bit like Moriarty to Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) He's an archetype, a figure standing for all kinds of negative mental states. Watch out for him, by the way. His speciality is to turn up when you're, you know, doing really good. There's lots of positive things going on, uh, and if he turns up, he will try to derail you. And I sometimes think that a lot of the art of the spiritual life is just learning, you know, how to tell Mara to hop it. <laughs> so I was thinking another big good advice, bit of good advice on this is get your friends involved uh, because they sometimes spot Mara's shadow before you see him. So anyway, Mara, in this story, homes in at this point. He's learned that the Buddha is seriously ill, and he politely suggests that it's time for him to go. He reminds the Buddha that he's always said he won't go until his teachings are well established. But now his teachings are well established, and there are followers of the Buddha who've realised the truth. So, time for you to pop off. But in fact... The Buddha's forestalled Mara. He has already decided. He says, don't worry, Mara. Three months from now, I will take final nirvana. And at this, there was a great earthquake, terrible, hair-raising and accompanied by thunder. So the Buddha now begins on a final three-month tour, continuing to teach, taking leave of his followers, And the last episode of this time opens at Pava, in a mango grove belonging to a blacksmith named Chunda. Chunda offers the Buddha a meal in the customary fashion, and the Buddha accepts in the customary fashion, which is to say, by silence. Following this meal, he contracts dysentery. In the words of the sutta, he was attacked by a severe sickness with bloody diarrhoea and with sharp pains as if he were about to die. But he endured all this mindfully and clearly aware, without complaint. And after bathing in the river, he walked back to Chunda's grove and we are told slept deeply. On awakening, his thought was for Chunda, because after all, Chunda is eventually going to learn that he's given the Buddha his last meal, and the Buddha has now passed on. Died, you could say. How will Chunda feel then? So with characteristic empathy, the Buddha makes a point of telling Arnanda what to say to Chunda. He should reassure him that whatever happens, Chunda was not at fault. In fact he'd done a good deed by giving the last meal to the Buddha. So this brings me on to my second topic, which is Ananda's grief. And the comforting of Ananda. So when the heat lessened, the Buddha set out for a town called Kusanara, being now very ill indeed. Passing over the large Hirinavati River, he and Ananda and a group of followers entered a grove of sal trees, planted by a local clan called the Malas. The Buddha lay down on a platform in this grove that was used for the mala's meetings in what's known as the line posture. And that's on his right side, supporting his head on his hand. So there's a, a rupa, there's a, um, an image of the Buddha in this centre, in that posture. i probably out on the left. Top of the bookshelves. Top of the bookshelves, so you can see when you go out to tea. And apparently that was the Buddha's usual way of sleeping. And you'll find that depictions of the Buddha's parinirvana will always have him in that pose. Now apparently sal trees are very beautiful. They have long, straight trunks, very large bright green leaves and large white flowers. And as the story goes, on the Buddha lying down, these sal trees burst into an abundance of untimely white blossoms. And divine music and song burst from the heavens the universe is, you could say, spontaneous response to a forthcoming event of cosmic importance. Now, it seems to have dawned on Ananda at this point that he doesn't know what to do with the Buddha's bodily remains, and so he talks to the Buddha about this. And straight after this conversation, the impending loss really starts to come home to him. The sutta says, And the venerable Ananda went into his lodging and stood lamenting, (coughs) leaning on the doorpost. Alas, I am still a learner with so much to do, and the teacher is passing away, he who was so kind to me. But the Buddha notices his absence and tells one of the other monks, go and fetch Ananda. tell him the teacher summons you. And when Ānanda comes, the Buddha says this, Enough, Ānanda, do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other? So how could it be, Ānanda, since whatever is born, has come together, is subject to decay, how could it be that it should not pass away? For a long time, Ananda, you have been in my presence, showing loving-kindness in acts of body, speech and mind, beneficially, blessedly, wholeheartedly and unstintingly. You have achieved much merit, Ananda. Make the effort and in a short time you will be free. Then the Buddha heaps praise on Ananda in front of all the assembled monks. He says, Ananda is wise, Everybody likes Ananda. People are pleased to see him. They like to hear him teach the Dharma. If he's silent, they're disappointed. So Ananda's outpouring of grief is very revealing. He's been with the Buddha practically all his life, has seen many facets of the Buddha. He could have lamented, he who was so wise, he who was so fearless, But at the end of the day, the Buddha's kindness stood above everything. It was kindness that stood out. And the Buddha's response is also telling. He doesn't try to soften the blow of his departure. That wouldn't help our Rather, he gives him a teaching on impermanence. He says, look, here right before you in this body is what I've been telling you all along. All conditioned things are impermanent you need to understand to accept that my body will die. But he also encourages him with love, heaps on him words of praise to hearten him, give him confidence. So in this episode, we get a glimpse of the Buddha's compassion, of the compassion that goes beyond. The whole of the Buddha's life has been about this. Seeing that we suffer and cause suffering needlessly, The Buddha just wants us to find a way out, as he did. And all his interactions with people are about that. In the words of this and other suttas, for the benefit and happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, the Buddha teaches. And we do see the Buddha reaching out ceaselessly all the time, as he does here to Ananda and did in relieving Chunda's remorse. Not just sometimes. Not only when he feels like it, or when he feels well enough, or when he likes somebody. Compassion is quite simply the Buddha's nature, limitless and inseparable from his wisdom. So can we allow this glimpse to inspire our own lives? Surely, like Ananda, what matters to us at the end of the day is kindness, love, love. We only have to think of what a big difference it makes to us if we go into a certain situation and we're received with kindness rather than coldness. And what a difference it makes to how we experience the world if we can or are under show loving kindness in acts of body, speech and mind. We might think we want all sorts of other things from life, but none of it actually affects us so much as love or the absence of it a while ago I did a practice of reviewing what had happened at the end of each day and noticing how I felt and I remember I wasn't having an easy time in work, there were all sorts of worries preying on my mind but the striking thing was that if I'd been unkind in a day and could allow myself to really feel the impact of that there was a deep unease which was on a scale quite different to whether say things had worked out in the office how I wanted them I knew at bottom that love, kindness was the value that really mattered. And yet, we give ourselves all sorts of spurious reasons not to be kind to ourselves as well as others. We'll be kind only if the moment is right, if we're in a good mood, if we approve of somebody or like somebody, if we approve or like ourselves. So we could really try allowing ourselves to be moved by this glimpse of another possibility. A glimpse in the Buddha of a love that transcends any possible reason or rationalisation. A love that doesn't need justification or depends on conditions. A love that is quite beyond what I want and who I like. What would it be to love in that way? So, my third and last topic the mystery of death and the parinirvana. News had been spreading of the Buddha's imminent parinirvana, and a large crowd had gathered. The malas of Kusinara came to pay their respects. Ananda, ever practical, had them visit in batches. And many of the Buddha's followers joined the throng. And finally, the Buddha turned to the monks gathered round him and said, It might be that somebody has a doubt or a question to ask. If so, please ask. Don't regret it later, thinking, I was in front of the teacher and I didn't ask my question. All the monks kept silent. But not to leave it there, the Buddha said, well, maybe you don't want to ask yourselves, but you could let a friend put the question for you. (laughs) Interesting thoughtfulness, isn't it? You know, we so often don't ask questions because, you know, we're afraid of looking stupid or something. But when there was still silence, the Buddha spoke his final words. All conditioned things are impermanent. With mindfulness, strive on. And after this, the Buddha entered deep meditation and passed away. From the point of view of the Buddha's unenlightened disciples, this was a tragedy. Actually, not quite all. I've just got time to tell you this. I wondered whether I would, but it's a a little sort of um, uh, thing in the scriptures, which I find quite curious. Um, You know, most of the unenlightened followers were uh, just distraught. But after the parinirvana, there was one monk named Sabada who said, I don't know what you're all sort of complaining about. I'm quite pleased to see him gone. He said, Look, he was always telling us what to do. You know, do this, do that. I was fed up. And now I can do what I'm like. I just thought I'd pop that in because I think it's so sort of um, endearing, really. <laughs> that somehow it got left in the sitter. You know, they didn't sort of put the red pen and censor it. You know? I mean, you know, some of us really aren't that receptive, are they? Sabella was obviously one of them. Anyway, (laughs) so yeah, most of the Buddhas and the disciples uh, felt it was a tragedy. They'd lost the Buddha. They'd lost what was dear to them. So the Sutta says, these disciples wept and tore their hair, raising their arms, throwing themselves down and twisting and turning. Very dramatic. And many traditional Japanese and Chinese paintings of the Parinirvana show a whole crowd of animals gathered as well. All in tears. Elephants, tigers, mice, (laughs) birds, the lot, all drop in tears. All except the cat who maintains an aloof (laughs) coolness about it all. So the unenlightened world has yet to really get the message of the Buddha's last words, at least on an emotional level. They might understand, to some degree, the Buddha's, everything is impermanent, but the true meaning of this hasn't really sunk home. And this is us too, isn't it? On the face of it, it's not really that hard to understand that everything is fleeting, and impermanent. But we probably haven't really taken in what that means, not in its true depth and fullness. And somewhere on an emotional level, against all the evidence and odds, we still expect to survive expect our loved ones to survive. But from the point of view of the Buddha, as well as his enlightened disciples, there was no tragedy. As I said at the beginning of this talk, Paranirvana means complete or final nirvana. So nirvana is the word used for the Buddha's enlightenment, which had already happened some 40 years previously. At Paranirvana, the Buddha's enlightenment was completed in the sense that his human body passed away, so from the Buddha's point of view, nothing changed. Before parinirvana, you could say that there was an enlightened consciousness with body attached. After the parinirvana, there was an enlightened consciousness without any trace of body. And sorrow and grief and fear were not problems for the Buddha or his enlightened disciples. You know, we fear the dissolution of the body because we fear the dissolution of ourselves. And with enlightenment, the idea of self is seen as an illusion. So instead of fear and sorrow at the parinirvana, there is for the enlightened mind only celebration, an experience of free-flowing interconnectedness and love. So all this is quite a mystery, In fact, even some of the Buddha's closest disciples were mystified as to the kind of being the Buddha really was. When they pressed him for an answer, he would say that no label or category could really describe him. There are many things one could say about all this, but I just want to pull out one strand, which is mystery itself and the value of meeting it. So a bit of an interlude here for a personal story on this. When I was a student in Exeter, I became good friends with an old lady who lived next door. She had many qualities and peculiarities, as we all do. My most vivid memories are of her enormous welcoming smile and an even more enormous hug, which she just bestowed on everybody very freely. Around 15 years ago, old age caught up with her and eventually she was taken into hospital. And when I went to visit her one day, I could see it looked like she didn't have long to live. So I went down to Exeter again a couple of days later, walked up to the ward she'd been in, and found her bed empty. I spoke to a nurse who said she was very sorry to tell me that Ruth had died just half an hour ago. It would probably have been while I was on the motorway going down to see her, expecting to see her again. But they told me that her body was still in the hospital in a room down the corridor, and so I asked whether I could sit with her for a while. I admit I was nervous. I'd never seen a dead body before. My grandparents had died, but there'd been a sense of secrecy about it, as there can be around death. It was thought too morbid for me to go as a child to their funeral. But anyway, the help from those showed me to the room, let me in and closed the door. What neither of us realised was she inadvertently locked me in. <laughs> I spent a little time sitting by Ruth's body took my leave, went over the door and found I couldn't get out (laughs) and it was very quiet out there nobody heard me knocking at the door so there was nothing for it but to go back and sit by Ruth and wait and as I sat with this unwanted, open-ended time in front of me I began to take in the experience there was me, still alive sat in this chair Um, And my old friend lying on the bed, looking much as she'd done in life, except very still. And I knew there was no possibility that she would move or speak. And two things became felt. One was the ordinariness of being with her? Nothing weird or supernatural had happened. She'd simply died. There was something profoundly natural about the event, profoundly straightforward. And yet, alongside that ordinariness, there was the sense of a mystery, so definite it was like a presence in the room. It was palpable, and I remember clearly thinking that it was like just a big question mark, hanging in the air, hanging in the room. Where had she gone? What had actually happened? Who or what was she when she was alive? A sense of mystery just hung. I simply didn't know, and that not knowing was something deep. But with that, there was an aliveness too, a wonder, a freshness that seemed to energise the room. My friend had died, but something, some level of experience, was very alive. So death in itself is a mystery. As somebody whose name I forget famously commented, death is not an event in life. We experience dying in this life, but we don't experience death itself. It's the ultimate unknown. We can and do have all kinds of ideas and stories about it, but these are woven, as it were, from this side of the divide. We just don't know. And not knowing is probably just about the most uncomfortable place for us to be, ordinarily. But it's also a supremely valuable place because so much of the time we think that we know about life and this gets in our way from the spiritual point of view. We live in a world of information, knowledge that we can arrive at with a click of the mouse. Most fundamentally, we think we know who we are and what the world is around us. We perceive life through a lens that's constantly interpreting, taking in as it were the raw material of experience of life and it boxes it up so we can label the boxes you and me, this and that. We want to pin life down rather than really know it. So if we want to grow spiritually we need to take a fresh look. We need a sense of openness, even of wonder to really appreciate life as it is. We need to allow that life is so much more mysterious than we think. Death is precious because you could say it is the ultimate example of something that doesn't fit into the normal world we've constructed. It's uncharted territory. If we don't know anything about our own deaths, we could say we certainly don't know about the Buddha's death or parinirvana. But again, this is a precious invitation an invitation to be open to the mystery of awakening, to allow that there is something much bigger beyond our current limited horizons. So there's a traditional Buddhist metaphor for this, and I'll leave you with this. You can see the Buddha as the first chick that hatches from a clutch. He's out there, tap-tapping on the shells of the other chicks. His taps say, come out, look what's here. There's a world that you couldn't even imagine from inside your egg. The other chicks, us, need that tapping. If it weren't for the tapping, we would stay inside our shells. They seem very cosy to us and safe. But the truth is, our world is limited. There's a whole wide world beyond, waiting outside. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.